You know, I, I came up with a slogan that a lot of people, it takes a while to understand, but I say, you're only as short as you sell yourself. So never sell yourself short. Like that. And so it's kind of deep when you think about it, because it's like, to me, it means there's, there's, to me, there's no bigger attribute than having your own self-confidence. And if you're selling yourself short, then you're going to act like you're somebody that needs to be looked at as short, right? And I don't mean short height-wise. I'm talking about just your overarching self-confident measure. And so to me, the, the taller you can sell yourself, to me, just means that you've got a, a, you've got a high sense of self-confidence, that you've got a high sense of self-value. This episode is brought to you by West Coast Beach, a year-round beach volleyball club on the west side of Los Angeles in Santa Monica, California. At West Coast Beach, we aim to get 1% better every day, both on and off the court. You can find more info about us at westcoastvbc.com and on Instagram with handle at westcoastvbc. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Within the Game podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wexler, and this episode is with NCAA champion, three-time Norseka Games champion, three-time Olympian, and Olympic gold medalist in indoor volleyball, Ryan Millar. In the business world, Ryan is a senior partner with Partners in Leadership, where he works with business leaders to transform culture, develop their workforce, and overcome the toughest business challenges. He's also a keynote speaker, as well as the host of two podcasts, the CrossNet Podcast and Unlocking Excellence. In this episode, we talk about the importance of vision and mission, how lessons learned in sports directly correlate into the business world, and stories from a very challenging and uh, triumphant 2008 Olympics in Beijing. Ryan inspires me not only because of his accomplishments within the game, but because of the way that he uses his past experiences from the game to directly affect his professionalism outside of the game. I hope you enjoy this episode, and please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Thanks. All right, I'm here with Ryan Millar. Ryan, thank you so much for being here. No problem, Aaron. It's good to be on the show. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, Ryan, you're an NCAA champion uh, in volleyball at BYU in 1999. You played pro in Europe, Italy, Poland, and Russia, a three-time Olympian, 2000, 2004, 2008, an Olympic gold medalist in 2008. Uh, you're a keynote speaker. You're a global leadership consultant, a culture management expert, and you're the host of two podcasts, CrossNet Volleyball Podcast, at CrossNet Game, and Unlocking Excellence Podcast. Uh, you're a father, you're a husband, and you're uh, just an inspiration, man. You, you, you've, uh, you've been very accomplished. Um, your IG is at RyanMillar9, and your website is RyanMillar9.com. Again, Ryan, thanks yeah. so much for being here, man. No problem, man. Keep going. You're, you're doing great. It's, uh, <laughs> it feels like I've had a very substantive life when you packaged it all together like that. So, Heck yeah, man. That's awesome. All right, well, let's, let's jump right in, man. What does living an inspired life mean to you? You know, I, uh, I had uh, Reed Pretty on my show, my volleyball show recently, and I told him about... Um, I was at a conference once and it was the CEO of Arby's was talking and um, they were talking about how to create engagement across their workforce. Now you think of an organization like Arby's who's got the majority of their workforce is seasonal high school kids. You know what I mean? It's like, how are you going to encourage them to, to buy into the Arby's brand, right? And bring their best every day. And the, the CEO said something that I, I've used many times before because I thought it was really insightful. He said, people will work hard for money. We all know that, right? That's pretty obvious. People work harder for good leaders. That's why organizations spend billions and billions of dollars every year on leadership development because they're trying to develop their leaders to inspire their people, right? But then he said, people work hardest for a purpose or a cause, and I, and I thought, that's, that's interesting, because if you think about it, anytime you've ever invested your time in any nonprofit organization or volunteered your time or money to, towards something, it was because you believed in the, in the cause of what it is that you were doing. And so I think people need to generally take that to their lives and figure out what their purpose and cause is for why they wake up every day, whether that be, I don't know, supporting their family, 
doing well in their career, uh, being a good person, being a good human, whatever it ends up being, the more you can tap into why you're waking up every day and why you're trying to fulfill that purpose throughout the day until you go to sleep again, I think becomes increasingly important. And for me, you know, you highlighted a number of different things that I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about my family. I'm passionate about the work that I do. I'm passionate about the sport of volleyball, which has brought me so much joy in my life. Uh, I'm passionate about my friends, the relationships that I have. Connection is a huge thing to me. And um, those are the things that, that wake me up in the morning and get me excited about, about doing the best I can in that particular day. I love it, man. Uh, you mentioned purpose and cause. Would you say that a mission would be something along those lines? Because, I, and the reason why I ask is because I feel like for me, living an inspired life means that I'm, I'm going to my mission. Like, what does that mean to you? Like, yeah, it's like, you know, I think the purpose and the cause is kind of a, the end tunnel at the end of a long road. And mm-hmm. the mission is kind of the road, right? It's, it's what drives you towards what you're trying to achieve. You know, without a vision or a mission, you either slow down or, or you don't really buy into what it is that you're eventually wanting to get out of life, career, family, whatever it is. And so I would kind of say mission and vision is kind of what is propelling you on that road towards what you eventually want to get out of your life. Yeah. The, the more succinct and the better you can buy in and engage into your mission, the quicker it is that you're able to go on the road, right? Absolutely. What would you say to someone out there who is, is not sure what their mission is? You know, I would say take some time and really figure it out first of all cuz it's so it's so important especially and i don't know your demographics of your listeners but as you get older you know you kind of start going oh so life isn't about just the here and now it's not about going out and hanging out with my friends and having fun life is about fulfilling some type of purpose right where you're 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 trying to be a better person and you're trying to make a difference in the world particularly in these times of days where we're in now is i feel like people have time now to kind of self-reflect a little bit more than they did where life just seemed crazy and everything was speeding at a thousand miles an hour and now everybody's kind of at home taking care of themselves and their family and i think it's providing us a really interesting opportunity to self-reflect and really truly understand what it is that is meaningful to each and every one of us. And, and I, I, I'm curious if we all take that valuable time and in the end, when all of this craziness is over, that we eventually come out better for it in the end is what my hope is. Um, I, I know the people that do take the time to, to, to sit down and really self-reflect I know that they will be better in the end. It's just, uh, I'm wondering if people are really taking this time as an opportunity versus seeing it as just something that's out of control. And they're, they're, you know, we're a victim to a circumstance that none of us have control over. And and typically in life, when we, when we fall victim to things that we have no control over, for one, it makes us feel good because, because we feel justified in feeling victimized. But, but the, the hard reality is, is it doesn't move us towards anything beneficial. It's mm. like we're, we're literally just stuck. And so even if you're in a situation that's outside of your control that might not be beneficial, you can still find positives in taking time to self-reflect. I've been reading a lot of books. I've been kind of digging into things that when it was a thousand miles an hour, I didn't feel like we're top of my list, but now have all of a sudden become important to me again. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, hey, you you inspire me uh, not just because of what you've done on the court. You know, I've I've watched you uh, and all your success as a fan. You know, but now you know I see what you're doing off the court. You know, with with business and now with the podcast and stuff. So, I'm curious how your mission kind of shifted. You know, from being an athlete, a pro athlete, a gold medalist, to being in business. Yeah, the you know. It's a little bit of a journey because um, I finished, I retired in in 2012. Um, I was an alternate for London, had a fairly significant injury, and I was getting older by that time. And once I didn't make the team for London, I kind of knew it was time to hang them up a little bit. And um, then, then then the thought process as a professional athlete after you're done is, okay, what's the next step, right? 
Um, because typically they don't teach you a lot of that when you're in it, when you're in it, you just think, well, I'm in the moment now I'm just, you know, I'm playing overseas, I'm making good money, but you're not really ever thinking about the future and what the future is going to look like for me. The logical choice for me was to get into coaching. I already had a coaching background. In fact, right in the middle of my prime playing years, I took a year off overseas and I went and coached at BYU and just to see if it was something that it was going to be. Um, something I wanted to look forward to after I was done. And it, and it was. And so right when I retired, I started looking at available coaching positions and um, thought that that was going to be the road that I was going to go into. And uh, a good friend of mine that I've known for many, many years, we actually used to live in the same city together and we'd bump into each other every once in a while. And um, it was right after I retired, we ran into each other at Costco one day and he just said, Hey, I saw online that you had retired and, you know, what's the next step for you? And I said, oh, I'm kind of looking. And, and it just so happened that he was one of our senior leaders in the firm that I work for now. And he said, Hey, you should come talk to me about partners and leadership is the name of our company. I think you'd be really good at what we do as a, as a field consultant. And I thought that's great. You know, I'd love to, you know, I'm always going to look for opportunities. I had no idea what they did. I didn't know what their philosophy was or anything. And um, we've got five New York Times bestselling books. And so he gave me the books to read and I read them and I thought, wow, this is, this is, there's a lot of crossover to what I just experienced from a volleyball standpoint, being on high functioning teams, uh, accountability, ownership, engagement, all of that. And, um, what I would be teaching in from a consultancy standpoint. And so, um, I got a couple meetings with the founders of our firm who also lived nearby and, uh, and, and that was pretty much it. That's the history. And that was almost, that was about eight years ago now that I've been working at this, this, this particular consulting firm. So that's awesome, man. Um, yeah. you, you know, I, I, so this project is all about, you know, finding the tools to help you stay inspired within your game. And what I'd like you to answer this question twofold, uh, number one, as an athlete, you know, um, as a competitor, but also as now as a business person. So how do you stay inspired within your game at practice? You know, what, what, think back to all those times you, you had practices. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it was, you know, quite a bit. You, you practiced a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I want you to yeah. think about that. And then, and then I also want you to think about how you continue your practice now as a business person. You know, um, I, I think the two are closely related. At least that's what I found over the course of, you know, almost playing international volleyball and then now almost a decade doing consulting work um look if you want to be a professional athlete you know that you're going to need to go through the grind and the grind is there's a lot of practice <laughs> because you know you, you you go to practice you kill yourself because the next guy's nipping at your heels trying to take your spot right and you know that as soon as practice is over the focus then shifts to recovery because I got to wake up tomorrow and I got to do the exact same thing over again. And I got to do that again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so mentally you, you get yourself into the gymnastics of, okay, you know, I've got, if I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. You know, Carl McGowan was my coach at BYU. He's a legendary coach. He used to tell us all the time in practice, like before practice, he would say, guys, if we're going to be here, we might as well be here. Meaning, look, if you guys are going to dedicate, if I'm going to dedicate myself to honing my craft and being the best that I can, practice is the best place to do that. And so I'm going to take advantage of every opportunity to do that. And so I would come into practice with two mentalities almost every day. And I think if you talk to guys that I played with, I hopefully this rubbed off on it. One, hyper-competitive. I just, I hated to lose any drill we were in. Whatever I can do to win, that's what I was going to do. And then the second thing that I was going to do was going to have a ton of fun. I'm going to crack jokes. You know, someone gets hit in the face, I'm getting right in their face and I'm telling them <laughs> six pack and, you know, guys fall down. We're laughing, we're joking, anything we can do to try to break up the monotony of every single day, kind of doing the same thing, but being able to do that in a way that continue to perpetuate fun to me was a way to kind of just alleviate a little bit of the tension of what we were trying to do. So those were two things for me. And then I go over to the consulting world and, um, you know, a big part of what I do is business development and sales. And I've never, I've never been in sales before, but what I found out was that it's very competitive and I, <laughs> right. and I like that a lot. 
because mm-hmm. I started going, okay, I could kind of see where my ranking is and where I was and how I could kind of inch my way up the chart and, and kind of hustle my way around, it, which is exactly what you're doing on the volleyball court as well, because you know you're not going to be the tallest. You're not going to be the strongest. You're not going to jump the highest or hit the hardest. So how are you going to hustle your way around in order you, for you to, to rise, you know, your level of play? And I, I quickly got into that mindset, into this consulting work as well. Um, I wanted to be the best executive facilitator. I wanted to be the best in front of large groups. I wanted to be the best person on the, uh, on the sales dashboard. And all of that kind of pushed me into a direction, in a directory that um, has been very beneficial for me over these eight years that I've been working as a consultant. So. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, let's, let's stay with that and talk about in an, an inspired game. And again, like I would love for you to talk about it on those two, those two aspects, one as a player, a competitor, a champion. Um, what does it mean to have an inspired game? What comes up for you when, when I say that? And also an inspired meeting, right? Because that to me is like a game in the business world. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're playing at a high level, Oftentimes, when you're in certain tournaments, you, you feel a certain level of um, excitement that goes into the game. You feel more inspired based on what tournament you're in. Obviously, if you're playing the Olympic Games, there's a different feeling around what you're doing. And so it's pretty easy to get to feel like you're playing inspired volleyball sure. in the Olympic Games. For sure. Uh, when you're playing in some of like a whatever, a red, a red and white scrimmage or like, uh, you know, an exhibition game or something like that, it's a little bit different. You might be focusing on certain things in your game. You might not quite be as inspired as you would be in a bigger tournament. But um, that's what I would say from a competitive side. You're always trying to get better. I think it was Jordan who once said, the day I stop getting better is the day I'm going to retire. So that mindset of anytime I have an opportunity to get better at whatever it is, my ball control, my ability to set balls, where my range on the court and how I can hit my blocking, my serving, whatever it is. I took it as a challenge for me to take all of those opportunities to do that until I was done playing. And then even now when I go out and play beach and I'll, you know, just mess around and I still kind of walk on the court and think, Oh, I wonder how much I could do this better than the last time I played just because it was kind of ingrained in me as a player this notion of kind of always learning and always getting better. Um, in regards to the consulting work that we do, you're, you're right. Because when you're in front of a larger group and you're facilitating a training or you're facilitating a meeting, I mean, I've been in meetings with the executive leadership teams of some of the biggest companies in the, in the world. And so um, you're constantly thinking about how am I going to bring value to this team? You know, they're obviously in their roles for reasons, right? They're, they're executive business leaders for reasons. They must be highly skilled at what they do. So my expertise, how am I going to bring value in transferring that information and that development onto them in this moment? And sometimes when you're in the sessions, you just kind of feel like, wow, like this is really grooving right now. Like I can feel this. I can feel that, yeah. you know, you can mm-hmm. see, you can kind of read people and they're like, they're kind of into it. A lot of head nodding. When you tell them to discuss something, there's a lot of robust discussion going on. And at the end of those days, you, you typically we're kind of like on our way back to the airport and we're flying someplace else. Um, but you're kind of reflecting on how you think it went. Maybe you're with another one of your colleagues and you're kind of debriefing how the day went. And it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty easy to know when things are going really well or when, or even in the moment when you have to adjust a little bit, but there've been plenty of meetings where you just kind of feel like, yeah, that, that was, that was really well recepted and, um, and they're, they're, they're getting better right now. So. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure you're really well prepared going into those meetings as well too, right? Absolutely. Just kind I of mean, like a game, right? Yeah. To- absolutely. You've yeah. got a game plan, you've got a strategy, you've done a lot of prep work up front. Um, most of the meetings we go to, we've already kind of talked to most, if not all the people that are in the meeting one-on-one just in preparation. And, um, it, it's critical because those business leaders will, can see through you pretty quick and they're already coming into something like that a little bit skeptical. And so you, you're already kind of, you're starting off on the wrong foot with them a little bit. Cause a lot of them are thinking, why are we here? This is stupid. Why are we doing, I got better use of my time doing something else. Hmm. 
And so you almost immediately got to create some credibility with them up front uh, or else you can lose the group pretty quick. Interesting. Um, you know, since this project is about the tools, you know, what tools can you offer when you're having an uninspired practice, whether it's on the volleyball court or maybe you're having an uninspired meeting, what are some tools that you can implement to snap yourself right back out of that and get back to the inspired feeling? Yeah. Um, I think if you look at it from the court standpoint, look, you're not going to be a hundred percent every day throughout all the times that you need to be on the court. There are going to be days when you, when you struggle a little bit, when you, when you lag a little bit, for me, those were the days when uh, like I forgot my ibuprofen, <laughs> which, which was pretty critical <laughs> <laughs> where, where maybe something's aching a little bit, but there was, there's a methodology that I use when I fly a lot too. And I've, and I use it on the court as well when I'm not feeling super well. And it's eventually we're going to be at the end of practice. So even though I might be in it and I'm feeling like garbage and I want to be, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I, I can tell myself mentally, you know, eventually we're going to be circling up and we're going to be stretching like it's going to be over. And then I'm going to have an opportunity to go home and relax and whatever, go to the beach or go eat some good food, hang out with people and then try it again next tomorrow. Right. And yeah. so, so when you think about you're on a long airplane flight, you know, a lot of people get a little mentally kind of anxious because they're like, Oh my gosh, I got 12 hours left still. And we've been on the plane for two hours and it feels like forever. I always go to that same mentality of, you know, eventually, the plane will land and we'll be walking off the plane. So I just got to <laughs> right. continue to think that this, this too shall pass. It's just going to, it's going to take a little while, but you can kind of get yourself into a mental mindset that eventually it's going to be over. No, that's interesting. Um, it, <clears throat> it just makes me think of actually Reed pretty. I know you've uh, interviewed Reed and Karch as well. And two things come to mind. Um, one from my interviews with them, Reed would always, was, would always talk about having the end goal in mind. So you kind of know where you're going. Um, and then Karch would always talk about productive thoughts, you know, like, like making sure that your thought process is going to produce something towards your goals. Um, I know you've in interviewed both of them. I was wondering if you could share some takeaways from both of, both of your conversations with them. Yeah, you know, I, I, I wanted Karch to be my first interview just because of his impact on the game and and you know kind of being considered the michael jordan of volleyball right and, um you know he's still done he's still done something that nobody's ever done which is one gold on the beach and indoor um uh, you know to be able to tap into the mind of somebody who's done or considered great to me is important because um i just think that people that have that mindset like Reed too, who's done some pretty special things as well in his career and continues to do some special things to be able to tap into that mindset is, is really important from a learning standpoint, because look, I've done some things, but I don't feel like I'm the best at everything. And so I want to know how Karch, you know, went about handling, um, you know, when he was a young player and having to deal with practice and coaches and, uh, I want to hear from Reed on what his thoughts were when, you know, he wasn't the main guy on the team anymore and, and how he went about continuing to motivate himself to be the best, even though maybe he wasn't the star anymore. Um, because the, the, the fact of the matter is, is eventually everybody gets to those points in their career and to be able to know how to handle it and, and, and be able to hear from the people that have actually lived that, I think is incredibly important. And so those were kind of the, the reasons why I want to tap into those guys and Hugh McCutcheon as well, who I had on the show too, which is just, he's just a genius in regards to how he can get the best out of his players. Um, I wanted to know what that looked like for him. How, how yeah. does he, how does he do that effectively? Because, you know, those are the types of things that I want to be myself. I want to know how to get the best out of the people that I'm leading or serving. For sure. And if I can, if I can go to the, to the masters, then, then you would be ridiculous not, not to try to tap into those, that, that expertise. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a really good time to actually ask you about your interview on unlocking excellence podcast. 
um, with Karen Schoenbart, the CEO of NPD Group. Um, yeah. you, and, and I'm going to leave a link to that because I encourage everyone to listen to that. But she talks a lot about um, team building and specifically a manager versus individual contributor. I was wondering if you could just touch on that and, and you know, tell us about your takeaways from that conversation. Yeah, she, she wrote a great book called Mom BA, uh, which she talked a little bit about in the interview as well. She dives into this notion of her first experiences of going from being an individual contributor, meaning, I don't know, better lack of words, kind of a worker bee, right? I've got sure. a job, I do the task, to actually managing teams and groups and, and how difficult that was because she kind of had developed herself into this self-starter um, she prided herself on kind of getting everything done herself versus delegating and leading. And um, she kind of did a crash course in what it was, what it would look like to be a leader or a manager. And it was trial by fire and it was trial and error. Um, I, I think she even talked about the first time she was a manager. And at the end of the year, she got these horrible reviews on her leadership capabilities. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it, it, just like, I, you know, she thought she was doing great. But here are these responses from her team saying that she was a really poor manager. And she's thinking, man, I, I really got to figure out what this is going to look like for me. And so in the business world, management development, leadership development is such a massive thing for companies because, because they recognize that the number one reason people leave their job is because of their manager. <laughs> and so it, and, and you, you, if, you, if you read any business article or the Harvard Business Review or anything, everyone will say there's a talent war out there right now where companies are, are, are almost 100% of the time focused on how to re, uh, attract the best talent and then how to retain that talent over mm. time. And, and, and if the number one reason why people leave their jobs is because of their manager, then if I'm a business leader, I'm putting a ton of emphasis into ensuring that our managers are good managers so that people aren't leaving and that we can retain our best talent. Mm. And so I think you're, you're kind of hearing her talking about how that journey happened for her. And obviously she figured it out because she was able to kind of climb the ranks and now being a CEO of, of, of a global um, data analysis company, they, they do a ton of work. They work with all the biggest brands in the world uh, where they crunch all of their retail data, really fascinating business that she runs. Yeah. But um but, but I just watch her. I've been in many of her executive meetings and I watch her kind of manage herself as the leader of that meeting because in the end, the decision lies with her as CEO, right? Yeah. But you would never know that being in one of her meetings because she's constantly looking for feedback. She's constantly asking for different perspectives. She's pulling people in. Maybe she hasn't heard from her CFO in a little while, but she needs to. She'll, she'll go to the CEO and say, hey, you know, so-and-so, you know, what are your thoughts on what we're talking about here? All of those things, those kind of emotional intelligence types of aspects that leaders have really are what define good leaders versus um, poor leaders or great leaders versus just kind of okay leaders. And, um, and it becomes critically important to understand the difference. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, I really resonated with her message. I actually want to stay on that for uh, a little longer because there's a ton of crossover with uh, sports, right? Whether you're a captain of a team or a coach that immediately when you said that, it made me think, man, players might quit because of their coach, yeah. right? So like there's this, these leadership qualities. And I was wondering um, if you could maybe talk a little bit more about the idea of the imposter syndrome as well as the Delta gap. And if you could just touch on those for, again from both standpoints, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, the imposter syndrome, as she talked about it, and as your listeners, if they go back and listen to the episode, that one really resonated for me, mostly because of what we just talked about. So I right. went from being a volleyball player to a, a professional volleyball player, and then going right into the business world. I don't have an MBA. I had no sales background. I had, I had no consulting background. So talk about being imposter. I'm now in this, this you know, multi-billion dollar industry uh, I'm traveling around the world working with all of these organizations who are expecting me to be a expert consultant that I have no experience in. So a couple things happened for me. One is I had to fake it a little bit till I made it like she <laughs> talked about as well, yep. which is totally fine because the better you are at faking it till you make it, you're going to, people are going to, uh, they're going to think it's okay. 
yeah. right? If, you, yeah. if you're good at it, which I was pretty good at it and sounded like she was pretty good at it as well, they're not going to know a difference, right? But as I was faking it till I can make it, I, I really just jumped in the deep end into how to be the best consultant I can be. So I, I, did a, I did a super deep dive into our curriculum and our content. I did a deep dive into what makes a really good person in front of a room. I did a really good deep dive into um, how to be a really good executive coach, which is a big part of what we do. And, and I just tried to absorb and learn as much as I could, as quickly as I could, mm -hmm. so that I could turn that into value that I was bringing to the clients that I was working with. And so um, that's awesome. after a while, the imposter syndrome tends to go away because you start developing yourself into mastery. And then when you can consider yourself into that mastery zone, then of course you're no longer consider yourself as an imposter. So that, that's great. The, yeah. 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 Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the Delta aspect I think is important as well, because I always feel like, and my wife has kind of taught me this a little bit as well. The most important, most important, the most interesting people that I find are the ones that have the biggest Delta, meaning they started from someplace and they've ended someplace else. That's extraordinary or, or really interesting. And, and, and then it becomes, tell me about how you did that. Mm. Right? right. Because you know, it's, it's the story of somebody being a gifted athlete and then becoming a gifted athlete and then being an athlete is not quite as interesting as Michael Jordan, who got cut from the, the, the basketball team to becoming the greatest of all time. Right. <laughs> like that's a more interesting story to me. For sure. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, or, or Kobe and, and, you know, his dad playing overseas and him living in Italy and, and not being around the American basketball culture, but still end up, you know, becoming this, this great icon in the sport. And to me, that's interesting versus absolutely. the other thing. No, absolutely. And I mean, would you say that um, most people have that Delta gap uh, somewhere, whether they recognize it or not? I, I think some people's is bigger than others. Okay. And that's, that's fine. Uh, that's okay. But, you know, I have yet to meet the person that has had the perfect life. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Where yeah. every day they've, wake, they've woken up and it's just been perfect every right. day. I've met, right. I've yet to meet that person. And so, yeah, I think everybody's got some some form of the Delta somewhere yeah. where they've had to overcome, where they've had to figure something out in order to progress in the journey. Uh, I know I have, I know Reed has, I know Karch has, you know, yeah. they, they have his too. father, <laughs> as he talked about on the podcast was from, you know, communist Hungary and they had to escape and there's all of this stuff. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, to me, that's what's interesting about people's lives. And that's what I want to get to know about. Karen, Karen Schoenbart, who I talked about in the, in the uh, podcast, hers was interesting as well. You know, she's kind of going through this journey of becoming a CEO in kind of a male dominated type of field and um, her ability to kind of latch on to mentors and people that she could rely on. And it was just interesting to hear her talk about where she started and then where she is now. Absolutely. <clears throat> One more thing on her. And then I want to talk about the, uh, the Olympics. Um, you know, she mentioned, uh, one of the, one of the things that she focuses on is focusing on strengths, you know, from a leadership position. She talks about how she spent a whole summer uh, working on her forehand in tennis, you right. know, and that, that was, even though the backhand might be a little weaker, she's focused on the, on her strength, which is the forehand. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that from an Olympic champion standpoint, as well as business in business, focusing on strengths, you know? Yeah. So there's, a, there's an adage that we use and we, we, we say often in our consulting work, and it really pertains to um, cultural evolution within an organization because that's the main focus of our cult consulting work is we yeah. help organizations uh, manage their culture more effectively. Mm -hmm. So we use this adage that says, water what you want to see grow. Love that. So if you think about that, that that's really what she's talking about because if you, if you want to see – um, you, if you want to continue to get better at your backhand, then you continue to focus on your backhand. I mean, yeah. on, on your, if you want to be as good as you can be at your forehand, as she used, then she's just going to continue to feed into that forehand. Right. And then the backhand kind of comes through, you know, getting better, but she wants, she's in, she's encapsulating this idea of watering what she wants to see grow. And then, and then what happens is if you're focusing on what you want to see grow, what are you no longer focusing on? You're focusing right. on the things that are actually holding you back. 
which is kind of what we do as humans, we tend to, we tend to, to focus more intently on the critical things that are happening versus the things that can actually benefit us and continue to move us forward in our journey. And so if we're watering what we want to see grow and we're no longer watering or fertilizing the things that are holding us back, eventually those things die. And then over here, you've got this really lush garden, mm. right? And then now, now I get to enjoy the fruits of this really well tender, tended to garden. I love and that. So yeah. look, look for those areas. What do you want to, what do you want to see grow? Go water, go water the heck out of it. Yeah. And then, er- and then choke out all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of uh, thinking about Kobe just doing all those jump shots, you know, just working on that craft. He, he, his jump shot was great, but he just worked on it every day. And he, all those makes, he's like, no, I'm leave. I, I need a, I need thousands of makes before I leave the gym, you know? Right. <laughs> cool, man. Um, let's talk about the Olympics. Um, you know, you, you were a three-time Olympian, but I, I specifically want to talk about the 2008 Olympics with you. Um, and specifically right now, I'd love to talk about the emotional side of it. Um, I know there must've been a ton of emotions going on uh, in those games, um, was wondering if you could touch on the tragedy that happened. And, um, if, if people don't know about it, maybe you could touch on that a little bit and, and to talk about how the team responded. Yeah. Yeah. It was an interesting time. It was, uh, so it was, it was two days before our first match. It was actually the day before the opening ceremonies and, um, we were at practice and, some people come into the gym, they go talk to Hugh and then they kind of whisk Hugh out of the gym really quickly. And we don't even know what's going on. So we kind of finish practice and then we go into a room where there's a member of there's the, the senior member of the USOC security detail. There's a member of the FBI and there's a member of the secret service that are there. And we're thinking like, what's going on. And it just so happened that Hugh's in-laws, his mother and father-in-law and his wife, took a tour in Beijing where the, one of the stops was to a popular tourist attraction called the drum tower, where you take an elevator to the top of the tower and you can kind of overlook the city of Beijing. And as they did that, a crazy Chinese local person came out of the shadows and began to attack his family and murdered his father-in-law at the scene, stabbed his mother-in-law multiple times. She would need life-saving surgery. A couple of them actually, if I remember right. His wife was far enough away that she was uninjured, but the, the attacker also attacked their tour guide. And then he proceeded to just run and jumped off the tower and committed suicide. And so oh. we're learning all of this and we're thinking, I mean, how tragic. Obviously, we're feeling terrible for Hugh's family because we, we all kind of knew Hugh's family as well. His, his wife, Wiz, was, was a, a, a player back also when, when most of us were still playing. So we knew her and her parents were huge volleyball fans. And so it was just heartbreaking. And, and on top of all this, we've got to get prepared for a match that's coming up just because the tragedy happens doesn't mean that the matches don't happen. So, you know, one thing we kind of came together as a team and we let's, okay, let's figure what we're going to do out here. A big thing we came to was, look, we're not going to have Hugh. Hugh's going to be gone. We're not going to have a head coach on our sidelines because he's got to go take care of his family. There's things much bigger than even the Olympics right now. And so we just said, Hey, it's, it's us. You know, we've been preparing for this for some of us for 12 years. We know what we need to do. Let's just go out there and and just lay it all out on the floor and whatever happens happens. And so um, it's kind of what we did. Um, you know, our first match was a little shaky. We were playing against Venezuela, which was a team that we should have beat. And we actually go up 2-0, but then we kind of let our guard down. They come back and we actually end up winning five. But and then and then from there we just kind of got into a groove and and um and started playing some really good volleyball. At, at some point, about the medal round time, because in the Olympics you go through pool play and then you go into a medal round. And right about that time, um, Hugh's mother-in-law had gone through some surgeries. I, I believe she was in a medically induced coma. She came out of it. And I think he said, according to her, one of the first things she said to him was, why are you here? Why aren't you with the team? That's how, that's what she's thinking, right? Wow. And for him, it was powerful because he's like, hey, you know, mom, like, 
I got to take care of my family right now. Right. This is much bigger than volleyball. And she right. said, no, no, we'll be fine. You, you got to go finish what you started. And so he reluctantly came back and was able to be on the sideline for the medal round games, which was fantastic having him back. But I just, I don't even know how hard it must have been for him to, because the Olympics is an emotional roller coaster. And the quarterfinals, we won in five. The semifinals, we win in five. So, so it wasn't like they were like easy games where we're just rolling teams. Like these were like intense games. And he's on this emotional high and ro low roller coaster. In fact, uh, after we won gold against Brazil, NBC's kind of right on him, you know, with the camera. And he's congratulating this coaching staff. But then, then he realizes that he needs to take a little bit of a moment. So he's, he kind of walks back and you can see him kind of go into like one of the media tunnels thinking that he's alone. But of course, NBC's like just right in on him and he's just immediately he's just breaking down because he's just like, I don't know how to handle this from an emotional standpoint. Wow. And um, you could see just the anguish. I've never been able to articulate what it looks like to be in an extreme high but also to be in an extreme low at the same time. Mm. And, and that's what that was for him. And um, it was just, it was a really interesting time, but an amazing story of tragedy, overcoming tragedy, coming together as a team and a group and executing on a plan that Hugh had a course that he had set us on throughout that entire four years since the last Olympics. So, yeah. Wow, man, that, that's really powerful. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, I actually remember that, uh, you know, watching, you know, and, and I remember the, the media made a, a, a deal, a big deal out of it. And it was a big deal, you know, because um, yeah. it, it was shocking is what it yeah. was, you know. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you from a player standpoint, you know, um, anger is the thing that comes to mind. Um, the emotion that comes to mind, obviously sadness too, but anger for that. So I'm wondering if I'm accurate about that for you and your team and, and how you use that outside circumstance, which wasn't really that outside because it was kind of within the family, right? But it was away from the game. So how you use that anger and that emotion to fuel you guys? You know, I get that question a lot. I don't know if the the tragedy did so much for us uh it, i didn't it didn't motivate us anymore we weren't we weren't necessarily out there playing for Hugh and his family we were just out there doing what we had trained to do so i i talked with um i can't remember if it was reed or hugh in the interviews that i gave but um i was at another conference and and i i was hearing this person speak and he was quoting a Navy SEAL captain. And this quote brought me back to this experience because I think it, it defines it perfectly. The Navy SEAL captain says, um, under times of difficulty or times of stress, we don't rise to the occasion. You know, normally people say, oh, wow, like you had a tragedy. You really rose to the occasion that time. This Navy SEAL captain says, no, under times of stress, we don't rise to the occasion. We sink to the level of our training. That's why we train so hard. Wow. And I thought that's, that's the description of what that, those two weeks in Beijing were for us. Because there, was, there, was, there wasn't going to be us like putting it into another gear. We were already at the top of the, the highest gear that we could get into. It was literally just us relying on the preparation that we had put into those games beforehand, knowing that if we executed on what we had been training on doing, that we would beat the teams and we would become successful. And to me, that's what Beijing was about. It was about executing on preparation. And we were prepared to be Olympic champions at that point. Um, and, and it, you know, the, obviously the Olympics, it takes a little bit of good luck here or there because the margin for victory is like that small in the Olympics. It's why the men have won three golds and the women have won zero because they've been the, the gold medal match, but the margin of victory is like that. And, and you need a little bit of something additional, but in the, in the, in the bigger picture, it's all about your ability to just rely on what you've done beforehand and go out and execute. And that's what we were able to do. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, let's stay. Let's stay on the topic of the Olympics. Um, in your interview with Reed, you talked about Hugh and how masterful he was about preparing you guys, right? But something yeah. that stuck out in that interview for me about Hugh was his constant belief that he was instilling in you guys that your champions are ready, right yeah. before you got there. That to me is is big, you know. And um, if any youth players are out there listening, or, or really any athlete that wants to be a champion in, in any sport that they are uh, pursuing that belief I believe is so important right before you get there right before you experience it you're like it's like in it's instilled in you in your in your in your mind and your heart and your soul so right. can you just talk a little bit about that belief and and what that did for you guys yeah you know it was important because I remember multiple times during that the four years up to the Olympics we call quad so up to the in that quad when Hugh took over as coach, there were multiple times when he would just flat out say, Hey guys, we're going to be the Olympic champions. And we all as players, you think to yourself, well, yeah, of course I want to be Olympic champion, but rarely would we say it Mm. because then it was like, it was out there. Right. And you're, you're almost like, um, you're almost jinxing yourself a little bit. But what I valued about Hugh was his extreme confidence that in, in the plan, right, that he was, he was going to stick to, that he had confidence in, that we were going to be Olympic champions. We were going to be the best team in the world at the end. And um, I think back on that now, and it instilled this confidence in us to come in every day and, and live our mission statement and, and, and train like the best team in the world. Even though we might not go out and win the World Cup or, you know, do really well in world championships, but in the end, this, all of this work is going to be leading somewhere, and it's to the, to, to the place where we all wanted to be. You know, we didn't want to go out and be World Cup champions. We didn't, we didn't mm-hmm. necessarily – I mean, yeah, it would have been great to have won World Championships, but that's not what we wanted. We wanted to win the Olympic Games. And, and um, I think his ability to instill that, that motivation and confidence in us every day by saying those things out loud I think was critical. Yeah. Man, that's so awesome. Um, talk a little bit about uh, the overall Olympic experience. And if you could, um, maybe maybe some Kobe stories. You know, I'm a big Kobe fan. And, you know, the late yeah, great Kobe, too. you know, that, that it was so tragic to, to, to watch everything that happened. Terrible. But yeah, but I've been I've been asking people who have had experiences with him or, or even just like a wave or, or, or just even watching him or something like that. If you could just, you know, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so um, what's cool about the Olympics is, for the most part, everybody that's there recognizes and acknowledges greatness in everyone else. Because no matter how good Kobe was on the basketball court, when he talked to a volleyball player, he's like, oh, you guys are just as good as I am, but you guys are doing it on the volleyball court. Or when you talk to a tennis guy, same thing, or a tennis girl, or, or a kayaking person. There, there's there's a common mutual respect of greatness when you get to the Olympic level, which is really cool. And it, and it becomes a, a pretty significant equalizer. Even though everybody wants to take pictures with the NBA guys, they also know that the people that they're hanging around with are the best at their craft as well. For sure. And so in Beijing, um, so in the Olympics, the USOC typically rents some type of massive complex for all of the U.S. athletes to go train at in the city. So in Beijing, they, they rented the Beijing Institute Technology University. It was this huge campus, really nice place. And um, during the Olympics, you play a game, play a match, and then you're off. Then you play a match off. So you're one, you play a game every other day. So on the off days, you would go in and, you know, go into the gym, do some serve and pass, um, do some ball control stuff. Uh, get some stretching going, do some ab work, whatever it is. Typically, we'd be in there probably an hour and a half, two hours. And typically, we'd go from like 9 a.m. to like 11. And then as we were finishing, then the NBA guys would come in and practice in the same gym. So as we were done kind of taking off our tape on our fingers and our ankles and stuff, Kobe and, and you know, Dwight Howard and Jason Kidd and Darren Williams and all the, the NBA guys would be coming in and getting their tape on and getting ready to practice every once in a while they'd go up and slam a volleyball on the court and they think it's funny. (laughs) And, and so it was cool because 
I mean, I would literally be sitting on the bench and sitting right next to me would be Kobe. And you just rap with him a little bit. Hey, saw your guys' game last night. It looks like you guys are playing really well. And he's like, yeah, we watched you guys play as well. And I love volleyball. And I talk a little Italian to him because I, I played in Italy for seven years. I'm fluent in Italian and he speaks Italian. So we'd rap a little bit in Italian. And um, what was interesting is at that time, I actually became fairly good friends with Darren Williams, who was playing for the Jazz at that time which was, I was, I live in Salt Lake, so I'm a big jazz fan. And um, we even exchanged numbers and I'd go over to his house, we'd have dinner, we'd go play golf together, me, him, so it'd be me, Darren Williams, and Tony Finau. Okay. So when Tony was, before he was on the tour, him and his little brother were from a city near us and we'd go, I'd go play golf with Darren Williams and Tony Finau and his little brother, Kipper Finau. And, um, and so those are the types of things that you get when you go to the Olympics. The, the, the bigger story with Kobe too, which was pretty cool, is at one point I got a notification from USA Volleyball that Oprah was going to have us on the show. So Oprah, Oprah flies us out to Chicago, and I'm on my flight, and sitting right next to me is Darren because he's going out because Oprah is having all of the gold medalists from Beijing. She did like a big kind of Olympic show with all the medalists from Beijing. And so I got to go out there with Darren. We get to the hotel. Oprah has bought out the entire hotel. It's just the athletes in the hotel wow. in Chicago. Wow. And at one point, I'm going up to my room. It's me and Darren, Kobe, Dwight Howard, Jason Kidd. I don't know who else. And we're just in the elevator together. And they're all talking about what they're going to do and blah, 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 blah. And, and you just get to hang out with the guys and, and talk to them. And they, you know, like everybody says, they're just, they're just normal people. Right, they're, right. They're just elevated to another level because they're, you know, they're on a global stage. But yeah, he was always super cool, very methodical around what he said. He didn't, he wasn't, didn't seem like a guy that was kind of beat around the bush around anything. He didn't like to waste his own time. But um, yeah, it was, it was cool to to kind of interact with him a couple of times and, and have some like actual conversations with him. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Um, RIP Kobe. Um, yeah, yeah, man. Um, let's move on. Let's talk about sources, Ryan. Where do you get inspiration from? You know, when it was on the volleyball court, it really just boiled down to how much I just loved playing. I mean, you talk to a lot of volleyball people and it's just about how much they love the game, right? It's And so to be able to do it, in a way that allowed afforded me to have a good financial backing for my family, um, be able to go travel the world, meet cool people, see cool things. It, it, to me, that's what really motivated me to be the best that I could be. Cause I just felt so fortunate to be in a position that thousands and thousands of people would just die to be in. Right. I, I felt like it was a discredit to not, put forth my best effort when I knew I was in a position of being very fortunate. Uh, that's great. Um, can you, can you expand on that a little bit from whom do you get inspiration and, and you could name players or coaches or take that however you want. Yeah. You know, I, I tell people I've had the luxury of having some fantastic coaches in my career. Um, my high school coach was, was really good. Um, I always tell people he taught me how to be competitive. He's one of the most competitive guys I've ever, I've ever known. He still is to this day. It's incredible. Um, and then I get to college and I get to play under Carl, who's technically probably the best technical volleyball coach in the world. So my high school t- coach taught me how to compete. My college coach, Carl, taught me how to play because he, he was very much into the mechanics of how to be the best you can be from a can- mechanical technical standpoint on the volleyball court. And then, you know, I, I come to the national team and I get Doug Beal, who, who obviously has some, some pretty significant history in the sport of volleyball, and then Hugh. And I say, high school, I'd learn how to compete. College, I learned how to play. And then on the international stage, I've, I learned how to win. And so each one of those was kind of a progression of, of motivation. Anybody that knows and has played volleyball or a sport at another level, when you immediately go to that next level, you think, holy cow, like this is a step up. So when I'm in high school and then I go into college, I'm thinking, wow, like I thought I was good in high school, but now everybody's right. as good as I am. How am I right. going to figure this out? Eventually you kind of figure it out. And then you go on to the next level and you think, holy, like I was good in college. 
but now everyone else is just as good or better than I am at the national level. So now my, how am I going to figure it out? And to me, that, that type of that, the challenge of figuring all that out was really uh, appetizing for me. Like that's what made me hungry is like, okay, so I know I've got to get this much better. So what do I need to do to get there? And it's constantly like solving puzzles. And to me, that was really fun for me to do. Um, and that, that, that just kind of stuck with me throughout my entire career and continues to stick with me even in the business world that I'm, that I'm doing now, because I tell people being consultant is like consistently having a Rubik's cube and trying to figure out how to mold these organizations into a really nice package at the end that produces some amazing outcomes. And um, yeah. again, that's, that's appetizing to me. Yeah, for sure. Likewise, um, you know, you've, you've been blessed to be coached by some of the best, if not the best coaches in, in the, in the sport. Um, could you summarize all of their messages into like a, a, a message or a phrase or, or something that kind of encompasses everything that they're trying to do? Um, you know, no, I, 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 when I, what comes to mind is that the quote from Carl that he used to say all the time, which is, if you're going to be here, you might as well be here. Because <laughs> like if you that. really think about the depth of that, it, it rings true. Whether you, I'm a high school kid going to club practice or high school practice, or whether I'm you know, a college kid having to deal with school and, and practice and study hall and everything that goes into playing at an NCAA level, or if you're at a national level where you're trying to fight for jobs, you're trying to fight for your spot. You're trying to fight for rosters. If you can have the mentality of, if I'm going to be here, if I'm going to commit myself to this craft, then, I'm, then I might as well be here. Meaning I might as well give it everything I've got because, and then my mind goes into my mental state, which is I'm going to put forth the effort as hard as I can because I know eventually it's going to be over. At yeah, some right, point, this right. practice will be done. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, I'll have, and I'll have an opportunity to finally just kind of go, oh, like decompress, right? But if I'm going to be here, I might as well be here. Because yeah. I know that at the end, I'm going to have an opportunity to decompress. But I also know that I got to strap them on again tomorrow and do all I can. Because if I'm going to be here, I'm going to be here. So absolutely love that. That's awesome. Ryan, uh, that's great, man. Let's, uh, if, if you have a few more minutes, I'd love to um, go into the lightning round. Yeah. Okay, Let's great. All right, sweet. How do you define success and what does being successful mean to you? To me, success is respecting the journey. Because look, Beijing was fantastic. It was my third Olympic Games. Hadn't won a medal the other games. Um, so people are like, well, you define success by winning the gold medal. And I said, no, the gold medal was simply in the end outcome of a very long journey. And, you know, underperforming in 2000 in Sydney, missing out on the bronze medal in 2004 in Athens. Like all of those were steps in the journey that allowed us to get to where we needed to be in, in Beijing. And so I feel like success is really respecting the journey that you're on. And then success ends up being the outcome. Love that. How do you consider the idea of failure? I heard someone say once that um, the only way to find success in failure is to learn from it. And so if you're finding failure being something that's dragging you down versus something that's moving you forward, look, if you're in the sport of volleyball, you're going to fail a lot. You're going to lose mm -hmm, a sure. lot. Yeah. So if you think you're just going to be successful all the time, you're kidding yourself. The real success is figuring out what you can learn in those failure points that allows you to be successful the next time. So that's how I look at failure. What are the most successful habits that you do on a consistent basis? Um, I'm, I'm very methodical around, um, getting done what I need to get done in a timely manner so that I can have time to, uh, have a balance for my mental sanity. You know, as a consultant, we do a lot of work, especially nowadays via zoom over the phone, email. So I pride myself on having a very small amount of unopened messages in my inbox because I just feel like it alleviates this, the anxiousness that I would have because I've had colleagues that I'll look at their phone and they'll have, you know, 27,000 emails in their <laughs> inbox. I couldn't do that. I don't know right. if I'm OCD about that. I could be, but if I have more than 10, it, I'm like, I get like jittery. It starts freaking me out because I feel like I'm going to miss something. And so I feel like I've got, I've got a really good work ethic around 
getting things done in the moment they need to get done versus, you know, putting them off. And I think that's, you know, it's been fairly successful for me up to this point. So that's awesome. Uh, so every guest that comes on the show, I actually come up with a word that best describes them. Um, I'm going to ask you for your word okay. that best describes yourself, but I came up with two for you. Um, you know, Do I get to pick two also. You, you can pick, you can pick as many as you want, but um, you know, one or two would be great. But you know, uh, just going back to the Karch interview, you know, it was actually kind of cool. He actually put you in his starting six. You asked him for a, a starting six and, and he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll put you in there. <laughs> and I, I mean, that, that means a lot coming from him. So the word that I, you right. And so the word that I came up for you for volleyball is dominant, you know, and I, I've, I've watched you over the years. I mean, you're not really going to stop the one or <laughs> if they set you in the middle, that ball is pretty much going down. So does that, does that resonate with you? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I wouldn't say that for myself, but, uh, but coming from someone else, I'll take it. All right, cool, cool. And then in business, you know, listening to your podcasts and, and, you know, um, just researching you and just kind of figuring out what you're all about. Intellectual is mm -hmm. the word that came to mind. Yeah. I'll take it from both sides too. Uh, on the volleyball court, I, I think the word I would probably choose would be tenacious. Uh, I just think tenacity is a really respectable quality mm -hmm. where people that are tenacious, you, you know, you know, those people, those are the people you want on your team. Yes. You know, they're the ones that are just going to grind and grind and grind until they get it done. And they're going to figure things out. They're not going to let it, let things slip, slip through. So I, I would probably say tenacious with the business world. I would probably say quick learner just because of how steep my learning curve was. Yeah. And I've always kind of prided myself on, on being somebody that can pick things up really quickly and either mimic it. Like we were talking about, just kind of fake it till you make it or, or do that until it becomes some type of, of, of something that's proficient. And I, I feel like that's what I've done in the business world. So it's awesome, man. That's yeah. great. Uh, just a few more, a uh, few more here. Um, what's the most important lesson that has helped shape who you are today? Um, you know, I, I came up with a slogan that a lot of people it takes a while to understand, but I say, you're only as short as you sell yourself. So never sell yourself short. Like that. And so it's kind of deep when you think about it. Cause it's like, to me, it means there's, there's, to me, there's no bigger attribute than having your own self-confidence. And if you're selling yourself short, then you're going to act like you're somebody that needs to be looked at as short, right? And I don't mean short height-wise. I'm talking about just your overarching self-confident measure. And so to me, the, the taller you can sell yourself, to me, just means that you've got a, a, you've got a high sense of self-confidence, that you've got a high sense of self-value you know, you can get things done. You know, you can be someone that can be depended on. And so don't sell yourself short. Love that. Know your worth. Love that. That's awesome. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received and why? Oh man. Um, the best piece of advice. Uh, I don't know. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That's you can funny. get pretty far in life by not being an idiot. So don't be an idiot. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, Ryan, what is your ultimate why? You know, I, 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 you, you, I think a lot of people would hope that they leave this earth with a lot of people that you've interacted with because every single one of our influences is bigger than we will ever imagine. The reason why I say that is because, you know, you touch every person that you interact with and you never know what that touch point is going to eventually do for that person, which potentially could touch another person and another person. The ripple effect in our own individual influence to me is greatly understated. And oftentimes we don't ever really think about how influential our influences on other people that we come in contact with. And so I hope that at the end of my life, people will think that, I, you know, I was a good person. I, I tried to do the right thing. I worked hard. 
and I was somebody that they could depend on and, uh, and some of them that they wanted that, that was loyal and, and, and a person that, that they felt like, look, I, I'm, I'm grateful for knowing that person. And so, you know, th- those are the types of things that I hope people think about when I'm, you know, gone in a way. Man, I, I think that's a great spot to, to leave this conversation. Um, that's an amazing answer. And I, I, you know, I share that, you know, with you. I, I, I think that that's, um, that's something that comes up when, we, when I think about the word legacy. You know, it's about how we want to be remembered. And what you just said is just yeah, awesome, you know. So thank you so much, man. Um, I really appreciate your time with the, uh, you it's know. great. Yeah, this was fun. I had, a, I had a blast. I'd love to actually have you back on for a totally part two. Totally fun. Yeah. Um, oh, I'd love to come back on. Great. Uh, how can we find out more about you? Uh, tell us about, um, you know, any, any links or social media, anything yeah. like that. Yeah. You, you talked about um, the volleyball podcast is the cross net volleyball podcast. Anywhere, you, you know, go to your Apple podcast, uh, Spotify, just type in cross net. It'll pop right up. Um, the other pod, podcast is unlocking excellence. Um, and uh, on Twitter, it's R Y Millar. So Ryan Millar, M-I-L-L-A-R-9. And then Instagram, you said Ryan Millar9. Um, Ryan Millar9 at. Um, if, you, if you've got business listeners and they want to add me on LinkedIn, obviously reach out, reach out on LinkedIn. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn as well. And then um, because of our partnership with CrossNet, uh, if your listeners go to crossnetgame.com um, and use the, the promo code GOLD, then you can get $20 off their purchase at the, on the website. So um, that's, that's a specific promo code for, for the CrossNet volleyball podcast. And um, you know, we would greatly share it with your guys' listeners as well. So CrossNet, I don't know if you've played CrossNet, but it's super fun. It's uh, and the guys are just, the CrossNet guys are just killing it right now. They're doing some phenomenal things, innovating and just, they're really running the, the gambit around backyard fun and um, CrossNet's a good way to get people out and up and it's a good COVID uh, activity. Cause you don't, you know, there's good social distancing yeah. and, and uh, grab a volleyball and go have some fun. Awesome. Well, I'm going to leave links to all those things that you just said. Um, Excellent. When, when we put this out and again, Ryan, you're awesome, dude. Really appreciate your time, man. And uh, Thanks, we'll talk soon. Yeah. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on Within the Game podcast. Visit withinthegame.com for show notes and links on everything we talked about today. You can also subscribe to the mailing list, which will give you exclusive content from each guest, as well as more resources to help you stay inspired in and out of your game. Follow us on Instagram at Within the Game Podcast.